Well, if you turn over one page to page 10 in your worship folder, uh, you'll find there the words to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, which is we're going to look at together this morning. And uh, before we do that, though, let me tell you what we're going to do this week and next. Uh, We're still in the midst of working our way through the middle part of the book of Genesis. We've taken the last two weeks off for Palm Sunday and Easter. But before we pick back up that that series, I want to take this week and next week to talk about money. And to start, I want to give you a little brief update about how we're doing as a church financially. Uh, We just, the end of uh, March was the end of the first quarter of the year, and April begins the second quarter. And we are, um, one of my, at least my goals and aims, and I know it's the same for, for our elders, is to be as transparent with you, the membership, about our finances as, as we possibly can. And so I say that up front because if you have questions, I really want you to feel free to come and, and, and ask. And we will take all the time that is needed to, to walk through those questions and try to get you the information that uh, would be meaningful to you. So here's where we are. If uh, Back in January, we had a congregational meeting where we went over our budget for 2019. And just to refresh your memory of what we did there, uh, we put in front of you a budget that the session had approved, the elders had approved, that had a budgeted deficit for 2019. Uh, and if you're a person who is very much uh, a, a balanced budget person, please know you're not alone. Uh, we very much wrestled with the, the pros and cons of, of, of budgeting a deficit. And we did that for basically two reasons. One, we do have some healthy reserves right now. And we felt like that plus a budget for growth. We wanted to budget in such a way that we could absorb what we anticipate costs to be as our church continues to grow, not only just numerically, but also qualitatively. And what I mean is thinking strategically and purposefully about how to use the resources God has given us in such a way that helps our congregation to love one another and to love our city. So that's why we budgeted a deficit at the beginning of the year. However, as you can imagine, when you do that, it makes you very um, interested to keep close track on how things are going. And I think it's very safe to say the first quarter was a rough quarter. And we, uh, we budgeted uh, to have a $39,000 deficit at this point in the year, and we actually have a deficit of seventy-two. So just to give you an idea, we're roughly $30,000 behind where we plan to be at this point. Now, I tell you that just as purely as information. And the reason I say that is because it's not lost on me or or any of the elders that, for example, uh, first of all, giving at Red Mountain from its very beginning has always been cyclical. What I mean is it's never regular. It's never like we get the exact same amount every month for 12 months. And that's fine. That's not an unusual thing. Uh, Another thing that we're very much aware of is the new tax laws. There are a number of articles out, maybe some of you have seen them, where folks are having to rethink how they do their their giving because of the way the tax laws have changed. Uh, Regardless of what you think about that, that's just a reality. 
uh, that, that I think folks are wrestling with. So my purpose this morning is not to answer the question, why are we $30,000 behind? That's not my concern this morning. At this point, I just want you to know where we are. Because, you know, it's just inevitable that talking about money is awkward, especially in the church. And I just want to say up front, if you've had a church experience where you saw money very badly mishandled and you were still trying to recover from those wounds and that distrust, um, I just want you to know I, 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 I understand that. And I'm really sorry that that happened. And I wish I could promise from here until Jesus comes back, that, that we won't make those kinds of mistakes. I can't promise that. But I will tell you that we are working very hard to take those resources that you entrust to us as your elders and to use them wisely. Um, and so talking about money is awkward. But I don't want to shy away from that. Uh, my, my MO in life generally is when there's something awkward, you just got to move into it. It doesn't do anybody any good when something's awkward or uncomfortable to back away. Um, but I'll tell you, this reminded me of tipping. I don't know if you guys have you know, been to ca- cafes lately, but it seems like everywhere I go, everything I buy, there is a tip option. And I inevitably feel either um, really bad if I don't, Or I feel really entitled if I do. (laughs) Especially when I'm in a cafe, because I I like coffee. And the the barista is standing right in front of me, you know, and it's the iPad thing, and they flip it around, and it has 15%, 20%, 25%, 30%. Wow, somebody is very ambitious for a 30% tip on a cup of coffee. But at any rate, it's really awkward. I just feel like, am I communicating to you that I think that you're less than human if I don't tip here or as much? Or I was in a gas station the other day and I got a soda and a Snickers bar and it asked for a tip. And I was like, it was just really awkward. So money's awkward. And I want to take this week and next week to actually go back to the basics I want to try to take that awkwardness and I want to run it through the gospel together. And to do that, I want to look at this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So if you have it there in front of you, uh, feel free to follow along or you can just listen. And then I have a thought experiment for us as we we enter into this. Uh, Listen to God's word here. He says, this is the Apostle Paul as he's writing to the Corinthians. He says, we want you to know, brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. 
I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so here's our thought, thought experiment. I want you to think, and I, just in your own mind, what is your honest opinion about your giving habits to Red Mountain Church? What is your honest opinion about your giving habits to Red Mountain Church? And I, I ask you that question because my guess is that almost all of us, in trying to answer that question honestly, will, will fall on, at some point, along a spectrum. And that spectrum, on the one end, we would have, well, I, I'm satisfied with my giving habits. I feel good about that. And on the other hand, maybe you're dissatisfied. And my guess is that we have folks in this room that, that, that cover that whole spectrum and what I want you to think about, if that's where you go, and, I, and when I asked myself that question this week, it's where I, I went. If we go to this spectrum where we either feel dissatisfied, like I feel guilt, I feel embarrassment, I feel shame, or to the other end, I feel satisfied, I'm doing enough, um, I don't need to give anymore. Um, I don't like it when anybody suggests even remotely that maybe I might need to think about that. Here's what's happening. And, and I have to say, I realize what I'm, I'm saying here is, is a bit jugular. It's a bit uncomfortable. But if that's where we go, what I think is happening is we're, we're being diagnosed. And the diagnosis is that we are not living in line with the gospel. And we very much desperately need what this passage has for us. Think of it like this. If when it comes to money, and particularly when it comes to giving to Red Mountain, we tend to think either I feel horrible or I feel really good about myself. That's no different than when we find ourselves elated with our successes and devastated by our failures. What happens 
What does that say about the maneuvers of our hearts? I think what it says is that we are living not by grace, but by our performance. We're not living by grace, but by our performance. So what does this passage have for us that we need to hear? I've got three points for you this morning. The first one is, we need to see an example of gospel giving. That's in verses 1 through 7. We need to understand what the reason is for gospel giving. That's verses 8 and 9. And then we need to understand what are the ingredients of practicing gospel giving. And that's in verses 10 through 15. So first, let's look here at the example or an example of gospel giving. Here's the context. Paul, he's writing to the church in Corinth. And he's writing to them about a gift or a contribution that he's collecting from all of these Gentile churches. Uh, we, we know from Acts and, and Romans that Paul has been saying the very same thing he's saying here to the, to the church in Corinth, to the churches in Galatia, which is um, across the water from uh, Greece in Turkey. He's been saying the very same things to the churches in Macedonia, which is northern Greece. Think churches like uh, the church uh, at Philippi. And he's also saying the very same things to the churches in Achaia, which is southern Greece, where Corinth is. And what he's doing as he goes to all these Gentile churches is that he's trying to collect resources to take back to the church in Jerusalem that is under severe suffering and struggle and experiencing extreme poverty. And if you want to get a glimpse of perhaps why this is that happening, you just go back to Acts chapter uh, 6 and 7. And the experience of Stephen. And there's persecution throughout the, the Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And Paul is going to all of these other churches and asking them, Hey, can you, would you give to the church in Jerusalem? And I will take it back to them to help them. So that, that's the setting. And I also want you to see here that this is a profound moment in the New Testament church. It'd be easy to miss. Don't miss that these are Gentiles that Paul is speaking to, to give to the Jews. Gentile Christians giving of their resources to Jewish Christians. There's almost no bigger conflict in the New Testament than the Jew-Gentile conflict. And here we see the gospel taking such root in the lives of people who otherwise would be enemies are now as we'll see, eager to give of their resources to those people who are very different than them. So that's the context. And so Paul, given that big picture, here as he writes to the, to the church in Corinth, he says he's telling them about what has happened in these churches to their north. And he says, verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. In verse 1, the very first thing I want you to see about this example is not so much the Macedonians as what we see here is that giving is a gift of grace. Now, what that means is, according to the Bible, Giving of our resources is not natural. 
according to the Bible, our hearts want to hoard what we have and keep it for ourselves or for the purposes and desires that we have. That's what's natural to the human heart. And what Paul is saying here is that the example of the Macedonian churches is really, it is an example of God's grace at work in the lives of his people. What happens when God's grace produces the gift of giving in the lives of his people? That's what Paul is sharing with the Corinthians here. And so what does this grace of God look like? when it takes root in this way. Well, interestingly, you know, there's, we tend to talk about this as giving or charitable giving or all kinds of names, um, fundraising in our, in our culture. But I want you to notice that Paul, he talks about this collection and gives it um, a very different color. He calls it a grace. He calls it a service. He calls it a communion in service. He calls it a generous gift and a blessing. I find what's fascinating is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Paul never calls it a tithe. Which was in the Old Testament sort of the the standard marker of what God's people were called to give. A a tenth, ten percent of what they had. But it's, it's fascinating that nowhere in the New Testament do we see the New Testament writers do that. Here Paul is telling us that what we call things really matters if we're to understand how the gospel redefines and reframes how we think about our resources and giving it back to God and for the work of his church. So there's that. But second, what does this look like? Particularly with respect to the Macedonians. Look here when we look in verse 4. Paul describes them as begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Here is a description of churches who were eager, actually begging Paul, please, Paul, can we give you of our resources for the good of the church? Which is just, it's kind of ironic. I've never had someone do that. I've never had someone come up to me and say, hey, please let me give to what you're doing. Now, that's not an indictment. I'm just saying it's just unusual. But I also think it gives you a glimpse into how the gospel can change us and change our desires. So here we have these Macedonians were eager to give. But notice also in verse 5, Paul says, They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. This eagerness comes from entrusting themselves to God. That eagerness comes from a deep-rooted belief that God loves you, that he cares for you, That when he says that he will provide for you, that he will follow through on his word. But not only did they trust God, they also entrusted themselves to Paul. 
Think of it like this. To give away your resources to the church means you have to trust God and you have to trust the leaders that God has put in place to help carry out the work of ministry. And as we know from the other letters and even in the letters to, to Corinth, Paul had a hard time sometimes. He had to work hard to build that trust. But here the Macedonians, they're eager. They've entrusted themselves. And then notice in verse 3, Paul says that they gave according to their means and beyond their means of their own accord. That this work of grace produced in these Christians a wise, selfless generosity an open-handedness, a freedom to be generous. So here's what I want you to see. There's this example of grace at work in the lives of the Macedonians, an eagerness that was built on trust that led to a selfless generosity. But then there's a conundrum that we face in this example. When you look here in verse 2, Here these Macedonians, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, I want you to think about this. What is brought together in the experience of these churches who are also profoundly generous? They were undergoing a severe test of suffering. But notice, at the very same time, there is an abundance of joy alongside extreme poverty. What did that abundance of joy and extreme poverty lead to? It meant to, it led to this wealth of generosity. Don't miss this. This is not normal. I mean, let's be honest. When you and I experience Real suffering and affliction is, is an abundance of joy the norm for you and me? Does it bubble over into not self-protection and self-preservation, but profound generosity to, to others in need? You see, what we see here, this is, I, I want you to understand, I, that is not an indictment. What I'm trying to get you to see is what the gospel can make possible in the lives of his people, as God is at work. My point here isn't be like the Macedonians. My point is here, look what God can do in us that is so profoundly unnatural for us. And and so let's say this description of the Macedonians doesn't resonate with you or our experience. What can what can? Well, let's look here at the reason for gospel giving. What can change that? Look in verses 8 to 9. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What does Paul do here as he speaks to the church in Corinth, which... All you need to do is go read the opening chapters of of 1 Corinthians. It's a disaster. I mean, it is a church with more problems, believe it or not, than we've ever even thought of. 
And here Paul is not, he does not come to them with a command. He doesn't come to berate them, to beat them down. What he comes with is a deep desire for their hearts. He says, I want you to see that your love is genuine. Paul comes to them not with a heavy hand, but with the gospel. Verse 9. What is he? He's, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what I, want, what I want you to hear happening here, what is the reason? Why should you give to the church? This is the one and only reason. Verse 9. It is the gospel. So when Paul, what does he do here? He doesn't, he doesn't come to them and say, uh, you need to be more generous. He doesn't come to them and say, don't be afraid of giving away your money. What does he say? He says, remember Jesus. Remember what Jesus did for you. In verse 9 when it says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ That though he was rich, it says, yet for your sake. That's emphatic in the way Paul wrote it. For you. Remember what Jesus did for you. For your sake, he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now, what's Paul doing here? The best place to go to to dig into this is Philippians chapter 2. The passage that we read earlier. What Paul is doing is he is actually bringing the gospel, the incarnation of Jesus, into this world, into how we think about our money. Which that should make sense when you you remember the gospel changes everything about us. It calls into question everything about us. It promises new life for everything about us, including how we think about our resources and how we use those resources. And so here Paul is telling us, hey, look, Jesus gave up everything he had, his riches, as it were, perfect communion and fellowship with his Father in heaven in order to become impoverished. In other words, to put himself where we are to enter into a broken world, to experience all that is messed up about it, all the temptation, all the betrayal, the hurt, the forsakenness, even to the point of death on a cross, so that his poverty would lead to your wealth, that his death and resurrection would lead to new life for you. The riches of his death and resurrection are his poverty, but they are your wealth. They're your inheritance. So here's the question for us. Is the gospel winning in your heart when it comes to your money? That's what Paul's most interested in here. Paul is not interested in our deficit Or how much you give. What Paul is most interested in is, is the gospel at work in your life? 
And one of the most tangible ways that you can trace backwards to your heart, if it is, is is the gospel winning and how you and I think about our money. So what then does that look like? If the reason for giving is the gospel, what does the practice of it look like? Paul here gives us three ingredients, verses 10 to 15. The first one is, look in verse 12, a readiness. He says, for if the readiness is there, and then even back in verse 11, finish doing it as well so that your readiness in, in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. What is this readiness this word. What this word is really describing is a heart willing to give. And I want you to dig into that a little bit. Be honest with yourself. Why are you giving? You see, what Paul is trying to get us to, to really wrestle with is As one commentator put it, he says, this is not a tribute to a tyrant, but the response of trust and gratitude to our Redeemer. And if it does not have this character, he doesn't want it. What Jesus wants more than your money is your heart. And that's what Paul is trying to get you to see here, this idea of readiness. But secondly... He raises the question of how much. Notice verse 12 again and into 13. He says, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. Now, here's the difficult thing. And I, I, would, uh, I would contend that this is what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament does not teach you how much you should or shouldn't give. The New Testament leaves that to your conscience, informed by the riches of the gospel, for you, according to what you have, to make a free choice from a ready heart what you want to give. There is profound freedom, but that's also profoundly difficult Because it'd be much easier if I just said, well, you got to give this much. You know what's hard about that? If you don't, you feel ashamed. If you do, you feel self-righteous. The gospel does away with both of those by making you deal with Jesus, your love for him, what he has done for you. And then to run that through your heart and your mind and your life and wrestle every day with the question, if that's what Jesus did for me, in order that I might experience the riches of his death and resurrection, what does that mean for me? What choices do I need to make differently? Or do I need to continue to make, even when it's costly, because of his love for me? There is no other way to get around what the gospel does and calls us to in being generous, according to the Bible. And thirdly here, not only is there the readiness and and the amount, there's 
reciprocity or fairness in verses 13 to 15. Notice what he says here. He says, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. You see, the idea here is that in this context, there are folks who are desperately in need of resources that other Christians have. And Paul is saying, let the gospel move you to think about how you would help those Christians. Because the same thing holds for them if the circumstances flip. And what I most want you to do is to think about what does it look like for us as a community to have mutual care and concern for one another? Knowing that our circumstances as they are today might not be that way tomorrow. And we may be looking at one another for help. And not only that, we need one another to help continue the work of the, of the ministry of the church as we individually and collectively think about what is God calling us to do in this place and at this time. So let me, let me wrap this up by just acknowledging that our, you know, our circumstances are very different than what Paul is writing to here when he's describing the church in Macedonia and the circumstances in Jerusalem. But here is what remains the same. The gospel remains the same. The poverty of Jesus remains the same in order that we might become rich. And therefore, I think it's very appropriate for us to look here at verse 7 and to, to end on this. Here, notice what Paul does. He says, as you excel in everything, in other words, as you grow in your faith, like in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this great act of grace also. Here Paul is exhorting us, not with a heavy hand, but with the good news of the gospel, to excel in using the resources that God has given you for his glory, for the good of his people, and for the good of this world. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this passage, and especially we give you thanks for the ways that your word speaks to us that goes so much deeper than just do this, don't do that. How, how the gospel speaks to our hearts and how you care so deeply about why we do what we do, not just what we do. And Father, we ask that you would work by your spirit to weave the words of this passage into our lives in order that we might delight in Jesus, that we would remember his poverty in order that we might become rich in your grace. For it's in his name we pray, amen.